So my stupid buns today, I got my recording stuff all set up and I was thinking it's late enough in the morning that they're going to be going to sleep now. But no, two minutes before I was going to call you because it was our agreed time, Mm -hmm. Lemon starts throwing around her wooden hutch hideaway, which as you can imagine- Giant wood against metal cage is not good for quiet recording. It's very loud. And Nope starts digging into her hay rack. Just like (laughs) furiously digging into it. Most of the time they just like boop their little noses in and they try and find a satisfactory thing of hay. And no, she's just like. They know. Like animals are weird. They know. Man, they know. They know. Like, they like, have to. Yeah. I tried to get a picture of Alonzo the other day to send to a friend, and, like, the second... I, I don't know. He probably knows why. He knows that I'm obsessed with the thing that I hold in my hand called my phone, but he doesn't really know exactly <laughs> what it does. But I would I was trying to take pictures of him, and he always just kind of comes up. If I'm sitting on the floor, he'll come up and sit and kind of look at me and stuff. He won't cuddle, but... And I was trying to take pictures of him, and he was, like, notably turning, like, turning his head away. It was so annoying. He would not sit still for a good picture. And I feel like a lot of animals are like that with pictures, too. They're like, I'm yeah. adorable until you bring a camera out. Yeah. They're smart. They are. You know what animal is particularly smart? What? The raven. Oh, good lord. <laughs> That's uh, right. Okay. <laughs> I pulled off that segue super slick. It was flawless. It was flawless. <laughs> Let's record. So we are back talking about poetry again this week. We are Hope doing you're not part sick of it. <laughs> two. No, I I think we're probably going to get a little punch drunk because we're actually recording last episode and this episode in the same yeah. sitting. And I woke up about three hours earlier than I normally do because I'm unemployed. So <laughs> so I'm a bit loopy. <laughs> and I am staying up about two hours after I normally do. So yay! So yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun this episode. But uh, let's let's get into it. Yeah. We stopped at the 18th century last episode uh, because, it, as I mentioned kind of at the beginning of the episode, we saw a very marked difference between the Industrial Revolution and mm-hmm. the way that everything worked. Right. You know, when, when you want to talk about art, you really have to keep the Industrial Revolution in mind. It changed everything. It changed everything everything and all all joking aside i mean there is something to say about like the accessibility of printed things oh you know i mean sure the printed press had been around for a while but it had gotten to a point where like you just print off whatever Mm -hmm. you know if you have access to a printing press you can just put whatever out there yep so you didn't have to be necessarily like super educated in order to have access to this. You just had to be literate. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's actually, that's interesting. I kind of had the same discussion about music with Michael a few times, how a lot of people think that um, good music isn't made anymore. Uh, but that's not true. It's just buried because you know, another notable landmark for human civilization is the internet. And now because of the internet, anyone could put anything they want online. And so a lot of the good stuff is hidden and, you know, you have to search a little bit harder, but it certainly is there. So yeah, I mean, like Audrey said, with the printing press, a lot more started coming out, like a lot from a lot more authors. And as you'll notice, we have Instead of three or four for the 19th and 20th century, we have several, you know, and that's why we split it up because there was just a lot more content coming out. Yeah. So I kind of alluded to it before our intro theme there, but we're going to kick things off with Edgar Allan Poe. And (laughs) he's a really great example of what poetry was able to do after the Industrial Revolution and Mm -hmm. how the genre kind of changed. Mm -hmm. Because rather than trying to be romantic like the previous century, where you take things that exist and then you, like, kind of, I mean, gussy them up, you know, you you put them through the Instagram filter that (laughs) makes it look super... Sepia. You know, yeah, but instead of putting it through the Instagram filter where it just looks super nostalgic or, you know, the the colors are hypersaturated... Instead of taking things that already exist, Edgar Allan Poe decided to just be like, what if I make things up? Mm-hmm. Just like straight up. And that's where we start to see short form science fiction and horror and kind of metaphysical, you know, yeah. you've got a raven coming in saying nevermore. <laughs> like what? Just over and over <laughs> and over again. And first of all, like, why is this raven talking? Yeah. This is never addressed. Mm -hmm. But also, he is really, really good. Edgar Allan Poe is really, really good at building that sense of dread, Mm -hmm. which is what I love about true horror. Oh, yeah. It's not like the it's not it's not the images that stay with you and it's not the jump scares. It's like the it's the this makes me feel like it feels wrong. (laughs) You know? Yeah. It feels offensive. Yeah, so Poe is the father of uh, speculative poetry, which Audrey did a really good job explaining. It's pretty much just odd, out-of-reality kind of stories, usually science fiction or horror, but not always necessarily. But yeah, Poe is the first person anyone thinks of when they think about, well, within the first, you know, at least three writers they think about when they hear about horror. He's really, really interesting. I... I haven't delved into him as much as I should have. I do have a, a book of his work. So like I have a compilation of his stuff that I've been meaning to get to. Um, something interesting about Poe is that he actually anticipated the Big Bang Theory, not like the actual thing. He anticipated the Big Bang Theory through a poem called Eureka, a prose poem. Like he anticipated the what science was going to discover about where the universe really came from. And that's kind of freaky in and of itself um, because, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how, like, he was probably very educated, but in terms of, like, you know, scientific discovery, I'm not sure how aware he was of that. But, you know, the fact that he kind of, he kind of foreshadowed it a little bit is like, okay, Poe, like, where are you getting your information, (laughs) you know? Yeah. It's a little weird. Yeah, are you a time traveler that just decided to settle on that particular time period? Like, yeah. You know that 
like vaccines aren't really a mainstream thing yet, right? Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> are you sure? Are oh, you he's sure weird. this is something you really want to do? But one of the things that I really like about him is how accessible he is. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, again, another great reason why we're kicking off with him. When I was in high school, and I think a lot of, like, middle schoolers and high schoolers kind of go through a phase where they're like, oh, oh Edgar Allan Poe is, like, older, but I can understand him. Right. He's, he's and nitty like, gritty. I can... I can feel smarter because I'm reading somebody's works that's like Certainly. a couple hundred years old. And my personal favorite story was The Mask of the Red Death. Hmm. And that is a really, really great example of visualizing and, you know, putting metaphors in to the story in a way that is easy to understand. So, again, it's highly accessible um, and it kind of has that sort of poetic prose to it. Mm -hmm. It's not a truly poetic prose thing, but it definitely resonates of this has so many metaphors and so much Certainly. metaphorical imagery that it is a very, very good stepping stone. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it's easy to find online. I would recommend reading it. It will probably take like five minutes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, we also have a French poet named Rambo, and I actually have a very special little collection of his poems from my friend who went to France and brought it back for me. And they are in original French. And I, like I said before, it's hard to translate French or any other language poem into, you know, your your current language just because it loses a bit of its originality. If it rhymed, it won't rhyme anymore, you know, and if it had meter, it won't have right. that anymore. And so I really appreciate having it in French just so I can have the full experience. However, I, in at BYU on the last like semester of my two-year obligatory French study for my English major, I, we tried to study French poetry and it is very hard. And it's not because it's French, it's just because... It's already difficult for me to translate it into English, let alone trying to get something out of the poem, especially when it isn't how it was when it was like how it's supposed to be read, you know, mm -hmm. it's really, really hard for me. So if I was a little bit more fluent, I think I would appreciate Rambo a little bit more. But he is a very notable French poet. And like, I don't want to I don't want to focus just on um, or British or American poets just because there is a bigger world out there. But I also don't want to pretend that I know a lot more about them than I actually do. <laughs> but he's very notable. Next up on the list, we are going to discuss Oscar Wilde, who, like, I honestly, <laughs> this is one of those situations where his life is so fascinating <laughs> that as far as his poetry goes, I'm just like, I can't think of one straight off the bat. Mm-mm. Me neither. I hear his word, like, I hear his name so much, but you're right. I, I can think of a picture of Dorian Gray, but that's not a, a poem. It's a novel. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I can think of. So, I mean, I wanted to include him again because I, wa I don't want people to think that we forgot about these kinds of poets, but I, you're right. I don't know. <sighs> I don't know much about him. But he is important to know because, well, I mean, because of a lot of reasons, but one of the main things that a lot of people remember about him is that he was I mean as close to openly homosexual as you could possibly get at the time right and he actually had to be posthumously pardoned for that 
because it was illegal. And uh, it wasn't until actually the second half of the 20th century that those pardons happened, which is kind of unfortunate. But Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> People are backwards in a lot of ways. Yeah. But even in his prose, he had a lot of really poetic themes to them. And, like, this is, I don't know, I'm probably going to offend a whole lot of people by saying this. I actually kind of consider him, like, the first Kanye West. (laughs) Just because, like, he cared so much about the way that he looked. And he had this amazingly, like, just really impressive ego. Like, you just have to kind of stand back and be like, wow, dude. You know what? (laughs) Yeah, very I'd be really insulted if you hadn't just, like, if you weren't so conscious about the fact that you were being so egotistical. Right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The reason why I think of Kanye West when I think of Oscar Wilde is because you know, we, we talk about how important his written works are. And Carmen mentioned the picture of Dorian Gray, um, and he wrote, you know, some other po- uh, plays and poems and novels. But he was also known kind of for his, like, pithy one-liners. <laughs> and to be honest, like, they really do sound like they are straight out of a Kanye West song. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. The only difference between the saint and the sinner is that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Oh my goodness. Like, <laughs> that is so Kanye. Right? That makes me want to read Oscar Wilde more, honestly. <laughs> How about this one? I can resist everything except temptation. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of those ones where you, you think like, geez, Kanye, what a stupid thing to say. But you're like, oh, yeah, well, oh, wait. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's just so painfully witty. Yeah, this will be my last one. Uh, True friends stab you in the front. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That cracks me up. Right? Yeah, I know so many, like, I I guess I could call it a cult following, but I know that there's like a cult following for Oscar Wilde, and I guess it's just because he's kind of like irresistibly snappy, you know? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. What? I'm going to link to this in the show notes. Okay. Uh, BuzzFeed. I have a weird mixed relationship with BuzzFeed. The community actually came up with a quiz. Who said it? Kanye West or Oscar Wilde? Oh Oh my gosh, I love it. I want to do it. You're linking it? I'm going to, yeah, I'll link to it in the show notes. And I would really like to get either tweets or comments or, you know, whatever, wherever. I want to know what everybody got. Yeah. It's listening to this, like, please, please, please. That is please so go funny. take a quiz. I want to know what the average score is. Oh, that's so great. I really, <laughs> I, I would be really embarrassed if I didn't, if I got anything less than 100, because I feel like I know Kanye very well, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have Emily Dickinson, who was another notable female poet. And Emily Dickinson stood out to me. We studied her briefly at BYU. She stood out to me because of her weird use of punctuation. And I love punctuation. And I'm not going to expect any of my friends or anyone to know that because they don't read my poetry. But all my favorite poets like Emerson or Mary Jeebus that I mentioned before um, all use like a ton of punctuation or there's a total lack of punctuation. And I think that 
the the non-word parts of poems are often overlooked, but they're very important. Like the spaces that are used to not say anything or, you, you know, it's, I think it's often overlooked. And um, Emily Dickinson is particularly fond of the hyphen, which is also my favorite next to the apostrophe. Um, and it just gives her poems a weird kind of broken up quality. And a lot of her poetry is pretty, I don't want to say depressing, but it's, it's, I don't even want to say dark. It's just very, it's kind of deep. Um, she has the, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held, but just ourselves and immortality. And, you know, it's kind of like, oh man, like we're getting real (laughs) now, you know, and she has hyphens at the end of each of those. And, I started to wonder why, and I never really figured out why she did it herself, but, you know, I kind of decided it was something I wanted to experiment with, and it's a really fun, it's just one of those, she was one of those inspirations, like, oh, I can, you know, her poetry rhymes, but I can do whatever I want, there doesn't have to be commas at the end of my stanzas, there doesn't have to be, like, it doesn't have to look like a normal sentence, I can make this what I want, I can make it a visual treat as well as an audio treat, you know? I mentioned in the beginning of the last episode that one of the poets that inspired me to start writing poetry was Walt Whitman. Um, Walt Whitman was really interesting because um, his subject matter mostly. This was kind of in the midst of my like faith crisis, if you will, you know, and mm-hmm. I won't get way into it, but it, it was at the moment where I was like, what if everything I believe wasn't true? Like I've always lived my life as if it was true. So what you know, like how else could my life possibly lived? And I got scared thinking about it. But when I was reading Whitman, it was interesting because he made it seem not so scary. He kind of, and I'm talking about leaves of grass specifically. He seemed to kind of, I won't say trivialize it, trivial, trivialize, you know, those big questions, but he seemed to, to make them so much more simple than I was making them. You know, I was overcomplicating things probably and freaking out, but he just kind of made me think like, oh, you know, the end of the day, life is going to go on, you know? So there are a lot of sections of Leaves of Grass. The first section is called Song of Myself, and there's Song of a bunch of other things. But Song of Myself, I think, is probably the most popular one. And Walt Whitman, I believe we discussed this, was maybe not completely openly gay, but um, his sexuality certainly comes out in his poetry. It's very, it's, it's like spiritual, sexual though. And it's, it's kind of a hopeful reflection on life and how he connects with everything else and how he can be a part of something bigger. And that is always a comforting thing to me. Even if, even if I were to figure out that I wasn't special or that someone wasn't looking out to me, the fact that I could find a connection to the biggest thing out there, you know, the universe is really comforting. Even if I'm forgotten, I am still a part of this place, you know, and he really asserts empathy. It's, it's interesting. There is a quote that he says, agonies are one of my changes of garments. And he says that whenever someone comes to him with troubles, he doesn't try to think about how they might feel. He starts feeling what they feel instead. Instead of trying to understand where they're coming from, he tries to feel it himself. He tries to change his... It's it's really interesting. And it's, you know, a kind of empathy that I'm not familiar with. I, I 
I don't, you know, I don't necessarily try to say like, okay, I'm feeling what you're feeling and we're going to get through this together, but it's an interesting way to look at it. It's let me take on your pain so that we can just kind of like get through it, you know? Yeah. Um, and he, it kind of comes back to that pure Christ like love that we were talking about in paradise lost. Isn't that when we were talking about it? Yeah, mm-hmm. we were. Um, he also said, and whoever walks a furlong without sympathy walks to his own funeral dressed in his shroud. And so not only is it not very nice to not be sympathetic, but it's also like, it will kind of slowly, it will just kind of slowly isolate you and destroy you a little bit. Like it's a base human connection to sympathize and empathize and connect with other people. And that's what the whole thing is about. It's so interesting to read. A few other things stood out to me for Walt Whitman, and I'll get to the thing that bugs me about him at the end. Like I said, he was a really important poet during my little faith transition. And particularly because when I was going through this, I was on my blog when I was comfortable enough sharing my poetry. I would write these little snippets of a story about a tortoise who was supposed to kind of like represent me. And the tortoise was kind of kind of lazy and really down on itself and just did not want to try, you know. But it had conversations with the tortoise's creator all the time, and the creator always, you know, kind of brought it back up, or if 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 anything, just kind of gave it a glass of water when it didn't want to leave the house, you know? <laughs> um, and there's a quote that he says, and do not call the tortoise unworthy because she is not something else. And it seems so simple, but I read that and I was just like, I even made a note in the book itself. I was like, that's, that's me. Like, I'm the tortoise. And... I don't have to feel bad for not being something else. And it was so touching because it was so specific. And oh my gosh, it was just, it was so crazy to me. And I actually, I don't think I wrote any more. I don't think I wrote any more little tortoise snippets after that. And I don't know why it's a tortoise. I just thought of like kind of a non like inconsequential small animal. And that's what came up. But I was just so shocked that he talked about the tortoise and how she doesn't have to be something else. She's, she is what she is, and it's fine. Um, yeah. I did study a little bit of Walt Whitman in high school. And again, I think that he is another great example of a poet that is very accessible to mm-hmm. people who are learning about poetry. And it's a great way to kind of transition into, you know, kind of more complicated stuff. And that's one of those lines that I think is really important to younger people because especially during a and when I say younger people I do mean not just teenagers in high school but you know young adults college I mean it's a great way to really discover who you are without the pressures of being you know cool am I sitting at the cool kids table Mm -hmm. but there's still a lot of confusion that goes along with that and it's a really great way to basically say you need to forgive yourself for not being what you think you need to be. Mm-hmm. You are, you're here and that's just fine. That's what song of myself. And honestly, the thing that bugged me about it for a while, cause I mean, it's, it's a longer section than the rest. It's, it's really, really like braggy and self-obsessive and it bugged me at first, but I was like, why shouldn't like, it's okay. Like, why shouldn't it be like, there's a quote, um, no array of terms can say how much I am at peace about God and about death. And I'm just like, oh, good for you. Like, 
I'm so happy. Yeah. Like no one else is so great. Or <laughs> yeah. nor can I understand who there can be more wonderful than myself. <laughs> you know, and it Gosh. and it bugs me, but it's like <laughs> it's like you know the whole self-love movement is important I think to a point. But reading his stuff is just like after a while it does get really it, it gets really cloying. But it's Im- yeah. I, it's important because he's not saying like I'm better than everyone. He's just saying like I am me. I'm the only thing I absolutely know. So how can there be anything better than what I absolutely know? You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so he kind of reminded me, some of his themes reminded me a little bit about Emerson, which is a author that we didn't talk about. He is a poet. I am more um, familiar with his essays. So this one in particular reminded me of Emerson's essay, The American Scholar, which asserts students or people who are learning to he didn't necessarily say you shouldn't read books but he 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 always said never adopt their ideas as your own like formulate your own they're dead they're dead words and that's not learning it's memorizing and and piecing people's opinions together to form your own and that's kind of what Whitman did too he he didn't want anyone else to influence your opinions and don't take anyone else's word for it either like search and find the answers for yourself it's it's not bad to get your start with some ideas from someone in the past but don't don't adopt those ideas verbatim like search for yourself the the, that's more important than learning from books you know Mm -hmm. if with your permission we will move slowly forward in time into the 20th century oh yes so virginia wolf um i've had i've had a virginia wolf book on my shelf for a while and i haven't touched it uh just because i'm a little i'm a little scared because i know that she she's also really rough to read she has a very clear um stream of consciousness style of writing which i i do as well but i know what my stream of consciousness is you know so reading yeah. someone else's is really difficult um but she has a um, She's kind of popularized. She hasn't popularized it. She uses a poetic form called an elegy, which is simply just a poetry in mourning. So that's another reason why I'm kind of scared of reading her, just because I know it's probably going to be pretty depressing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And she, I've always seen her as one of those poets that kind of has one foot in one century and the other foot in the next century. And oh, absolutely. her stuff really kind of blends the two. And for some people, it is like exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. And for others, like it's just, it won't do it for them. And she is, <laughs> I mean, it, it is kind of notable that she is very, very feminist in mm-hmm. a lot of her attitudes. She is actually the one that coined the phrase, for most of history, anonymous was a woman. <laughs> which (laughs) ain't that the truth (laughs) yeah (laughs) i love that she has you know she has a lot of quotes kind of relating to what it is to be a woman and especially a woman that wants to be successful Mm -hmm. and again she's just pithy quotes you know Mm -hmm. and it's kind of a hallmark of a lot of poets of this time is that they just they came up with a lot of things that are extremely quotable and like there's nothing wrong with it it's just it is important to recognize it for what it is which is going back to what you said it's really important to learn things for yourself yep these are really fun to like listen to and entertain but whoo boy like do not create 
a like religion out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So she said things like, if you do not tell the truth about yourself, you cannot tell it about other people. Jeez. You know, which is, again, like kind of like you stop and think about it and you're like, okay, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. And then you think about it a little bit more and you're just like, oh, of course. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you, when, you know, when you have a personal experience and that quote comes to mind, you're like, oh, that's what it was talking about, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, so next we have Sylvia Plath. Um, so she is a good example of the verse fable, which is a poem that has a moral summed up at the end. And a lot of fables, you'll think of Aesop's fables. I loved reading those when I was little. You'll think of animals. And more often than not, they do have animals in the story, um, just to kind of make it a little bit more accessible to children who are learning, like, you know, don't talk to strangers or always tell the truth, that kind of stuff. But she has a poem called Dialogue Between Ghost and Priest that is also considered a verse fable. Um, Sylvia Plath is really personal to me because I read the bell jar and it ended up speaking to me a lot more than I would have preferred. <laughs> it is, it is the hardest book I've ever gotten through besides maybe, um, catch 22, but that's a different way, different reason. Yeah. It was just, it was really hard to read because, well, first let me say, so this is during the confessionalist era, which is an era where artists drew upon personal history for artistic inspiration. And you might kind of think that that's what all artists do, but there are a lot of, you know, like the epic poets that don't really draw upon their own stories. You know, they might draw upon a shared human experience, but so with Sylvia Plath and the bell jar, she was actually severely depressed when she wrote it. And it's about um, a, a woman, a young woman going through depression. And it is it is a very it's very hard to read. Um, and I wouldn't say it's necessarily poetry, but the way that she like each individual sentence by itself wouldn't be poetry. But the whole thing itself is absolutely a poem. It's just a big, huge representation of something that is really, really hard to talk about, but that she had the, she had like, you know, <laughs> she had, she was going through it. So what else are you going to do, but write about it unless you're going to do something, you know, horrible. And I have so much respect for her as an artist for that, because it, it must've been very difficult. Yeah. And I think that there's a kind of weird idea that those who suffer the most create the most beautiful things. Hmm. And as people who tend to be a little bit more artistic, you and I, and also as people who have gone through depression, like, no. <laughs> yeah. I'm it's... sorry. Like, it is, it is important that the bell jar exists because it's important to address what it's like to go through mm -hmm. depression. Mm -hmm. And it is beautiful in in the way that it is mm -hmm. done. But that being said, man, I would much rather produce I'd give creative it things. Me too. While I'm I'm feeling well, <laughs> I'd even go so far as to say, like, I mean, I I was I was really artistic, and I think I wrote my best poetry as I was falling into you know kind of a bad pit. Mm -hmm. But when I like settled and I was down there, and you know everything else went away, it was not worth anything. I would have probably given up all the artistic inspiration I had to just never feel that way again, you know? And I oh, think, yeah. I think it's, I think it's true to an extent that I think the best, 
I think the best pieces of art are are done through extreme emotion, whether that be like extreme love or just extreme sadness or depression. But I think it's almost harmful to say like to say that because it could I don't know, it could for a while it kind of perpetuated mine. I was like I noticed that I was making my best work while I was feeling my worst. And I was like, wow, like this is this is great. Like I, I've never written like this before. And it's it it just kind of might make you a little comfortable in misery because at least you're creating great art, you know, like Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this is all to say, uh taking a page out of the verse fable <laughs> format. Don't romanticize mental illness. No. Just don't do Just it. Just don't do it, please. It's not very fun. <laughs> no. Um, so I don't really have much to say about Robert Frost, Maya Angelou, or Margaret Atwood, but they are notable in this period. Um, Robert Frost mostly just because it's a it's a, it's like almost a social thing to know who Robert Frost is, I guess. Like I see sure. more Robert Frost quotes like the whole miles before I go I miles to go before I sleep. I see that quote all the time in houses and I don't really understand why, but it's kind of like a social, like, oh yeah, poetry. Like I know Robert Frost kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I would really like to move on to E.E. Cummings, who is my greatest inspiration for poetry. I also have to just pitch in and say that he is probably my favorite poet. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's really hard for me to choose just one because, of course, there is such a wide variety of forms of poetry. I was actually only recently introduced to him, like within the last year, which is kind of crazy to me because I started reading his stuff and I was like, how have I never interacted with these before? Oh, yeah. So my my first interaction with him was somewhere I have never traveled. Mm-hmm. And it was actually in comparison to Shakespeare's Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day. Oh, wow. Because both poems are describing the way that a person makes the author feel. Mm-hmm. But the way that E.E. E. Cummings writes his stuff is, again, just something that you feel more than something that you analyze. Right. Which is kind of how I feel about Shakespeare's poetry is that, sure. you know, you do feel definitely feel but there's also a a sense of analyzing to it you know why did he choose this word why did he choose this word here Mm -hmm. you know why does he do iambic pentameter Mm -hmm. we can talk about this until the sun sets and then more (laughs) but with E.E. Cummings it's very much why did he choose this word well because it is the one that he wanted to use it's not fitting into any sort of form it's not fitting into any sort of pattern. He just sat there and was like, this is how it makes me feel. Bam. Yeah. And I love I love this one just because it really is just one giant run-on sentence. And mm-hmm. I don't know, that evokes feelings too. It kind of like, oh my gosh, I need to take a breath. Like, please like just calm down. But it's kind of, that's kind of how it's supposed to be. And most yeah. notably, I think the lack of punctuation is just... Even, even not just like, you know, dots and dashes and stuff, but like just no, no capitalization. And most, most times when I see his name online too, everything, it, it, nothing is capitalized either. It's always lowercase EE, lowercase Cummings. And it's such an interesting, like aesthetic choice, you know, kind of, kind of like, it's kind of as if he just kind of like jotted it down or just typed it up real quick and didn't proofread or spell check or anything like that. Right. And I yeah. like that. It's it's the he felt it at that moment he had to get it out. 
Right. And addressing, going back and addressing next to, of course, God, America, I love you. Because it is that run-on sentence and because it starts to feel frantic, it really lends itself to that feeling of just kind of bitterness Mm -hmm. towards patriotism. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love this poem so much, is because I am personally in a place where I feel like a lot of patriotism is very forced, um, either through this strange idea that being patriotic is part of what makes you an American, but also like the peer pressure behind, well, if you don't like this, aren't you an American? And I feel mm-hmm. like that's not what patriotism should be. It sure. should be a genuine love of the country because you feel like the way that it is feels like a community and it is actually bettering the people. And I think that he kind of addresses the lack of that extremely well in the poem. Oh, yes. I think so, too. It's very yeah. sarcastic. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think he's another one of those accessible poets that's just... If you want, if you kind of want to start simply, you just kind of want to read some someone's thoughts without having to worry about, you know, deeper meaning. I feel like E.E. E. Cummings is kind of as straight as it gets um, for most, for the most part. Mm-hmm. This is why I really like the 20th century, because it's starting to talk about things that like even historical things that I am a little bit familiar with, you know. So Allen Ginsberg and Carl Sandburg. I gave Audrey a little quiz in the last episode, and one of the poems that I tried to quiz her on was a Allen Ginsberg poem from his work Howl, and it was actually for Carl Sandburg, and these two are both classified as beatnik poets, and the beatnik era is a lot of fun um, in the sense that like it's 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 counterculture, and it's you know it's the it's people writing about things that everyone else is kind of scared to talk about, you know. Um, it's a counterculture that rejects conformity and materialism, especially in the middle class. Um, it's jazzy and surrealistic, and interestingly enough, it has a lot of ties to Zen and Native American spirituality. And I like to think that that's it's it's that way because it's kind of a focus on like, what is America? What should it be? And like, how do I feel about how we got here? You know, Beanic poetry is very interesting. Um, it kind of is familiar. It reminds me a lot of slam poetry because of the cadence that it's usually said, and it's usually really emotionally and almost angrily recited. Um, it does have a certain kind of jazzy beat to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, I think it is another one of those that they need to be recited. You know, it needs to be performed for someone. Absolutely. And I will jump in and kind of, I guess, jump ahead just a little bit and say, I am one of those people that I acknowledge the similarities between beatnik poetry and slam poetry, Mm -hmm. but I am also one of those snobs that is going to say I much prefer slam poetry to beatnik poetry. Awesome. And it is actually because slam poetry kind of dispenses with that zen and spirituality, and it's just like, hey these are the emotions I'm feeling and here's why mm-hmm. it feels very, very straightforward. Whereas with beatnik poetry, I feel like it, it still is straightforward, but it tries to dress feelings up in a way that I feel is not necessarily genuine. Mm-hmm. I understand. And uh, you know, this is 100% my own opinion here, right? <laughs> but to me, that is, that is the difference between the two interesting 
No, that's good to know. I, I, have, I have no experience with slam poetry and very little experience with beatnik poetry. So I'm interested to know the difference. Um, should we talk about Bukowski? Yeah, I think we should. We kind of mentioned him a little bit last episode. Uh, I really, I think I we really need, do like I, him. I think we need a content warning, though. Yeah, Maybe like well, a trigger so warning. I'm not planning. Yeah, I'm not planning on reading anything explicit. But if you are planning on reading Bukowski, he is pretty like, you know, if you were to take our talking about it as a suggestion to read it, he is he's pretty he's pretty gross, and he kind of. I don't know. That's kind of one of his themes. He kind of just revels in his gross old manness, and I kind of that's you know that's kind of one of the reasons why I'm so interested to read it because I'm so unlike him <laughs> that yeah. it's so weird to read about someone who feels the way they do. And Audrey said that she so um, she gifted "Love Is a Dog from Hell" a poetry book to her husband a few years ago, and she told me, and it was just. It was really funny because she was very reluctant to do it, although she knew that he would like probably really like it just because it is great poetry, but it's kind of that thing where it's like, I don't necessarily approve of the ideas contained in here, but it is very fun to read. <laughs> yeah. And not all of his poems are no, not all, all the same. Um, some of them are oh, extremely explicit. Yeah. But then there's poems like Alone with Everybody, which is actually found in Love is a Dog from Hell. And... It has some kind of weird imagery in it, but it's not as, like, hypersexual or super um, misogynistic as a lot of his other stuff is. Mm -hmm. And it, it has that sense of kind of emptiness to it. Yeah. Not in that it doesn't have content, because obviously it's, like, it has a lot of feeling to it, but mm -hmm. you end up reaching the end of the poem and you're just like oh this is so nihilistic yeah and it's a little cathartic i, I i'm not honestly, a nihilist well but honestly i kind of find nihilism to be a little cathartic weirdly enough yeah. but i yeah. yeah i get that yeah so you can find it online just mm -hmm. google alone with everybody and <laughs> it is definitely worth a read and if you want to avoid a lot of the like super weird him talking about his junk stuff yeah. that's, <laughs> that's that's understandable that is a good poem to look up <laughs> um yeah so so he does have a, a big theme is women and he 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 can't i can't really tell if he loves or hates women honestly it's kind of you'd think if he really despised them he'd kind of stop seeing them but it seems kind of like a love-hate relationship but i in that book love is a dog from hell and his poem read up and down he says, there's always one woman to save you from another. And as that woman saves you, she makes ready to destroy. <laughs> yep. And it's just kind of like, man, you've, you've been, you've been hurt, <laughs> haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, another one that I really appreciate this, um, because yeah, like we said, a lot of this stuff is weird and kind of gross, but this one little, this one little snippet from a poem called for Al in that same compilation of poems he says, don't worry about rejections, pard. I've been rejected before. Sometimes you make a mistake taking the wrong poem. More often I make the mistake writing it. And I love that because I feel like he's kind of expressing the the hardship of writing poetry in the first place mm -hmm. and trying to make a career out of it, which I don't even understand how you begin to do that. If I could do that yeah. for a living, it would be 
incredible, but so, so scary to like your, your, your personal feelings and experiences is your income. And when you put it all on the line and they say no, you're like, oh, well, I, I tried really hard though. Like this is, (laughs) you know, and it just makes me really, really sympathetic because, you know, every single published writer has been rejected 20 times more than they had been published when, you know, before they started getting on a roll. But I just really appreciate that because I think he's also kind of saying it's worth making the mistake of writing that poem, (laughs) you know? Yeah. 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 Okay. Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein is so strange. And every time I think of her, I'm looking at a picture of her right now, but every time I think of her, I think of Kathy Bates just because of Paris Midnight, uh, in, Midnight Paris. in Paris. And yeah. she is such a perfect, I think she is a perfect representation of Gertrude Stein, truly. Yeah, and I have a weird relationship with Woody Allen films. I, yeah, I think I'm too. about 50-50 on them, where about 50% of them I'm like, wow, this is really good. And 50% of them I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah, This is so... Pardon the term. This is so masturbatory. (laughs) Who did you think was going to be interested in this? Yeah. Yeah. But Midnight in Paris is actually probably my favorite Woody Allen film. And I know that the cast has a lot to do with it. And for those who have not seen it, uh, it's about a man who goes back in time from modern age to the roaring 20s in Paris. And... This was a time where a lot of, like, American and English and, you know, just artists from around the world decided to meet in Paris because that's where they were going to be artistically inspired and they would just feed off of each other's artistic energy. And Gertrude Stein was, I mean, I don't want to call her the ringleader, but she was definitely a central part to that mm-hmm. that setup. I think so. Um, so I really would like to read one of her just small little snippets. So she's got some weird poetry that it, it doesn't really seem to have any form. It's kind of, it's kind of prose poetry, but I don't want to call it prose poetry because it's not prose. It's just written like a paragraph, you know? Mm. Um, so she was really heavily inspired by Picasso. And I love this because it introduced me to Cubist writing, which I did not think was a thing. I didn't think that could be a thing. But I started to learn a little bit more about what cubism is, and it's trying to look at something from all angles at once. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so if you see Picasso, you see a lot of strange kind of morphed, distorted faces that you know, like, oh, I know that if he's facing sideways, which it looks like by his profile, why do I see both of his eyes? It's really kind of off-putting. But she accomplishes that with her poems, especially in Tender Buttons objects, which is literally just her musing about um, a bunch of objects around. And so she kind of takes a, a cubist interpretation. This one's called a carafe that is a blind glass. A kind in glass and a cousin, a spectacle and nothing strange, a single hurt color and an arrangement in a system to pointing. All this and not ordinary, not unordered and not resembling. The difference is spreading. And it's like, wait, like what, you know? What are you trying to do? But I mean, I think what she did is she just stared at this jug of water until 
until she felt like she, you know, and you look at a jug of water and you're like, how fully can I understand this piece of glass, you know? But I think she kind of obsessed over these objects for a while until she really, really was satisfied that she got a full picture of them. And it's confusing to follow because she is looking at it from a bunch of different angles and trying to get it all down at once. Which is hard to do with writing. You know, with Cubism painting, it's a little easier because you're just looking at an image, not reading some words. But it's a really, I wouldn't even say I am particularly fond of her poetry, but I have to point out that it is some of the most unique stuff I've ever read. We didn't really touch on this too much with E. Cummings, and we really should have, about how the actual like shape of the poem, when you look at it on the paper... Uh, starts making a huge impact on the way that it is interpreted. Yep. And he tended to write his poems just kind of in like, like he still broke them up in lines, Mm -hmm. but many of his poems just look like big blocks of Mm -hmm. text. Whereas if you want to look at uh, a really good example of Gertrude Stein's style, where she has a lot of like run on sentences and then just like, three or four words that mm-hmm. are complete sentences, at least in the context of her poem. I would say look up, if I told him, a completed portrait of Picasso. Mm. It is a long one. We're not going to do a reading of it. I'm not going to do any quotes. But just if you look it up and you look at it on the page without even reading it, you can see that there's these long lines, you know, these two, three line paragraphs. Mm-hmm. And then just like seven eight lines of just a few words Mm -hmm. yeah and that visual the visual part of poetry looking at it and looking at the shape of the poem is what my favorite 21st century poet does but we'll get to that in a second there's another poet that i kind of want to touch on uh really briefly her name is marge piercy i actually don't know a whole lot about her but she wrote this poem that i just stumbled upon randomly and when i say randomly i really do mean randomly I have all these books from my parents because my dad has never thrown away a book or donated a book ever until like the last year where Mm -hmm. finally he was just like, I should probably get rid of some of these. Yeah. So every once in a while he would part with a few books and most of them were textbooks. So I actually have a lot of college textbooks for English classes that are basically just compilations of short stories and poems. Mm Mm-hmm. I stumbled upon this poem called Barbie Doll by Marge Piercy. It really hit me when I read it, and it was one of the things that kind of woke me up to a poetry appreciation, because there's not a lot of rhyming going on, and you look at the shape of it, and it does look like a poem. And when you read it, it has kind of the beat of a poem. But the topic is about how this girl feels the pressures from a very, very young age to look perfect, like the dolls that she's given, you know, and specifically a Barbie doll. And the very last verse, and it's so sad, the very last verse talks about how it isn't until she's dead and on display in the casket that people tell her that she's pretty. Mm -hmm. And it's just so heartbreaking to me because uh, over the last few years I've really become you know a a feminist because I look at issues that women have to face and I say well yeah of course I'm a feminist like I want 
to be treated like a human being. And this yeah. poem is a really good example of how women tend to not be treated like human beings. Right. Interesting. So that's uh, what I've got for uh, kind of more traditional poetry. Hint, hint, we're going to talk some, about some uh, non-traditional poetry here in a second. Yes. Non-traditional poetry. Are you talking about what I think you're talking about? Mm, I think I am. Okay, cool. Because we're going to talk about rap. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually learned, someone told me that rap, R-A-P, meant rhythm and poetry. Is that true? Because it kind of like... I don't know. It kind of blew my mind. Um, So, oh, okay, look at this. So it was called rap. This is from Wikipedia. It was called rap, expanding the world's earlier meaning in the African-American community to discuss or debate informally. So that's interesting. You know, I I think the first thing that comes to mind is the little rap contest that Eminem has in 8 Mile where they're just like, Mm. you know, they're just throwing verses at each other and stuff. And it's, oh, my gosh, guys. We love rap. We really do. <laughs> yeah. And it's so weird to hear from, like, two 20-something white chicks. But Well, yeah, we covered that really in the very first episode, though. So. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Maybe people are hopping on and listening. Yeah. And not listening to the That's first episode. That's true. We understand it's weird. Yeah, and the first few episodes are kind of rough anyway. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> I haven't taken time to go back and listen to again. Anyway, um, we... No, please don't. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. We love rap, and I... I uh, so, when I worked at a restaurant, a popular Italian restaurant, um, and it wasn't the Olive Garden. Don't think it was the Olive Garden. I don't want you to think that. I have nothing against it, but it wasn't that. Um, I befriended a person there that was a poet like me and he was really expressive and really liked, he was kind of a old soul stuck in like a upper 28 middle, you know, upper 28 year old body. He really Mm -hmm. preferred like the classics in poetry and the classics in music and, you know, thought that kids these days, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. And so when we were talking about poetry one day and I brought up rap, he was like, we're not talking about rap. And I was like, well, it's, but what, yeah, we are like, it's the same thing. And he would not accept, he would not accept that rap was considered poetry. And it's frustrating because I've written down a few Kendrick lines here. And if he didn't know it was Kendrick, Like, if I just said, hey, read this poem, it's great, he'd probably be really impressed, and he'd probably really like it. But for some reason, he just does not take the the genre seriously, and it's so frustrating, because it has so much to offer. I'm, I'm really obsessed with Kendrick Lamar, I really am. And at this point, I think he has reached a greater admiration within me than Kanye has. I mean, in terms of music, of course, um, than Kanye West has just because of his his writing it is beautiful and i've put it down here in kind of poetry form and this is from his album damn his most recent album which is excellent by the way and it's from a song called triple x and it actually features bono so that's the interesting (laughs) thing is that a lot of a lot of people who don't listen to rap really really like the artists that rappers like to highlight or you know feature in their songs 
So it's really surprising to some people that, you know, Kanye would want Bon Iver in his song or something like that, you know. Anyway, this is from Triple X from the album Damn. Hail male Jesus and Joseph, the great American flag is wrapped and dragged with explosives, compulsive disorders, sons and daughters, barricaded blocks and borders. Look what you taught us. And it's it's a really jarring song. It's I mean, it's yeah. about it's about America and Bono has this little well, actually, it's not Bono. There's a little bridge in the song that says, America, God bless you if it's good to you. <laughs> yeah. You know, because it's like it is it is kind of like God bless America, but also like for the people that America like benefits, maybe, you know. Um, so that's a really interesting one. He get, He's been political from the beginning, but more so near the with this most recent album in particular in the song Lust on that same album, he kind of briefly talks about a lot of, he briefly talks about the feelings that a lot of people had going on during the most recent election that they weren't really capable of putting down. Um, So this is from Lust. We all woke up trying to turn to the daily news, looking for confirmation, hoping the election wasn't true. All of us worried, all of us buried, all our feelings deep. None of us married to his proposal. Makes us feel cheap. Still and sad, distraught and mad, tell the neighbor about it. Bet they agree. Parade the streets with your voice proudly. Time passing, things change, reverting back to our daily programs stuck in our ways. And that that one really sticks out to me just because, I mean, it's really easy in the moment. We're not going to get political, but it's really easy in the moment to see something that upsets you and be immediately moved to action and to... Um, incite others to join you and, you know, try to, try to make change. But after that change doesn't happen, but you know, the things that you didn't accept are still happening. You kind of lose that. Then the song is called lust. You kind of lose that lust for, um, social reform, you know? Yeah. And it is, yeah. it is really sad because it's still, you know, if you, if you considered it a problem, then you probably still consider it a problem now, but you've just kind of lost the initial push to do something about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it has a lot of kind of similar, uh, not necessarily themes, but definitely feelings that the uh, E.E. E. Cummings poem kind of have. Totally. That's what I love about recent poetry is it gets yeah. so political and it's stuff that I am experiencing that I can understand. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Ugh, I wouldn't say fun. It's a very hard album to listen to in terms of content. Um, I, yeah, as far as, as far as rap poetry goes, please listen to Kendrick. Any of his three most recent, I think it'd be good kid, mad city. There's, I have a whole page of quotes that I didn't read just cause I know that that's kind of ridiculous, but, um, good kid, mad city to pimp a butterfly and damn are all excellent, excellent examples of how rap can be poetry because it, it just is so emotive and so purely Kendrick. It is rap. So it's going to be explicit. Don't, don't get me wrong there. But I also think that the explicitness has some value in terms of um, him expressing himself purely, you know? Yeah. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and include a picture of the way that Carmen wrote these out in the show notes. And you can see 
the way that the format kind of changes the attitude that you can have towards it. Mm -hmm. Because if you were to go online and if you were to look these lyrics up, they would, you know, pretty much just be written out like lyrics. Yeah. You know, once once the thought ends, you start a new line. Right. Like the, the, yeah. When you format it kind of like how you would read a poem, it really does change. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to plan on doing that. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, I actually, as I was thinking about songs and like how they relate to poetry, I thought about that stupid, stupid joke on Bob's Burgers where Jimmy Jr., tries to impress Tina with his poems put to music. And they're not songs. Right. It's an invention of his own. <laughs> I it, love I think... that show so much. It's, <laughs> it's so personal. Yeah. But I think it is kind of important to note that uh, there are a lot of lyricists out there that do a really, really good job of writing poetry and and putting them in songs. Mm-hmm. And there is definitely a difference, you know. If you look at Justin Bieber's Baby, mm-hmm. nobody's going to look at those mm-hmm. lyrics written out and be like, oh, yeah, that's totally poetry. Right. And it's frustrating, too, because I am a... I, I, I consider myself a mediocre poet, but I, I cannot write songs for crap. And I've had several people tell me, oh, just put your poem to music. I'm like, no, it wasn't supposed to go to music. It's not a song, you know, it's like it's it's yeah, it's difficult. (laughs) But yeah, also not every song is going to be a poem. Some songs belong in song form. But when you have something like rap where melody is maybe secondary to um, content and um, I think it's. I think it is, it's pure poetry. That's, that's just the end of it. It's, it can be taken out because it's meant to be, it's all, it already is spoken, you know? Yeah. And I, I kind of bring up songs because (laughs) believe it or not, I actually consider Taylor Swift to be a pretty decent poet. Ah, interesting. And I'm not going to say that with every single one of her songs. Because Shake It Off is like, you know, it's a fun song to like go jogging to, but it's definitely not a, you know, masterful piece of poetry. And actually, I haven't even bothered with her new album because I've listened to a couple of the singles and I've been so underwhelmed by it that I just haven't even bothered. But going back to 1989, Mm -hmm. which I have said before multiple times, and I will say again, is probably one of the best pop albums of the Mm -hmm. decade blank space is actually a pretty darn good poem i've never read it like a poem i've always just listened to it i'll have to give it a shot yeah well let me um go ahead and just i'm gonna read one verse like a poem we're going to uh, leave the music out of it cherry lips crystal skies i could show you incredible things broken kisses pretty lies you're the king baby i'm your queen Find out what you want. Be that girl for a month. Wait, the worst is yet to come. Screaming, crying, perfect storm. I can make all the tables turn. Rose gardens filled with thorns. Keep you second guessing. Like, oh my god, who is she? 
I get drunk on jealousy, but you'll come back each time you leave, because darling, I'm a nightmare dressed like a daydream. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I, of course it's, it, they're lyrics, but I mean, it, it is considered lyrical poetry. It's just like feelings. It's just, you know, all those one words to kind of describe some, some scene or something is very, very lyrical poetry. Like it's just kind of expressing her perceptions purely. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of that kind of, again, metaphorical imagery, like, you know, rose gardens filled with thorns. Mm-hmm. You know, she's... Oh, it's poetic, certainly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's poetic, you know, and I kind of sort of hate it, but at the same time, like... You can't deny it. I get it. some of those lines stuck in my head and think, like, that was actually really well put together, Taylor. Yeah. Darling, I'm a nightmare dressed like a daydream. Like, yeah. That's so good. She's very self-aware as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's actually kind of a good segue into talking about more modern lyrical poetry. And I don't really have a whole lot of, like, you know, published professionals that I want to talk about, but I do want to actually plug our friend Addie, who is pursuing poetry. I love Addie! Her poetry is really, really good. Um, Her Instagram tag is... I write poetry. I am free. Again, I will link to these in the show notes. She does a lot of really good lyrical poetry. Another form of very, very modern poetry. I mentioned it before, but I am a huge, huge fan of slam poetry. And it's one of those things that can be really, really easy to start going down the rabbit hole if you start looking it up on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And like literally, if you just put slam poetry into the search bar, you'll usually find a lot of, like, slam poetry competitions. Yeah. One of the, I think, better slam poets is Rhiannon McGavin, and she's one of these younger poets that participated in these contests and did extremely well, and she's um, had, I think, a really, really good career of writing poetry. She posts her own videos And I will link to one in the show notes called Smile. Mm -hmm. And it is about how difficult it is when you're a woman and you're told to smile because it makes you look pretty. And just like the way that you want to scream and just tear things apart on the inside. She wrote a book called Branches and I cannot find an E version of it anywhere to buy and download so uh, my birthday is coming up if uh, somebody out there wants to buy branches by <laughs> Rihanna and McGavin for me interesting hint hint I'm winking right now I know you can't see it because this is an audio platform yeah yeah do you want the electronic one or a physical copy well, apparently I can only get a physical copy. I can't find an electronic oh, copy. Oh, I see. That's what you just said. Okay. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, I would totally have it downloaded. You know, and I have a video saved in my Facebook thing that I I, I don't go back to rewatch. I just saved it because I don't want to lose it. But it's, um, I don't know if it would be considered slam poetry. It might just be a poem. I mean, it might just be a poem told very, very emotionally, but it's Halsey, H-A-L-S-E-Y. And it's a poem about sexual abuse and it is very... <gasps> very powerful. I think I've seen it. 
it's like hard to watch. Like she's yelling at you, you know, it's, oh, yeah, it's very, very good. That's really the meat of our episode here. But because he is so special to Audrey and I and probably several other people, um, Shel Silverstein needs to be mentioned for his children's poetry because children's poetry is a is a, another branch of its own that we are not going to take a lot of time to talk about. But it is. I remember I remember what it was like reading his poems and it, they were so much fun and they made me think and they had really, really fun drawings next to them and. I think I remember reading A Light in the Attic and the Where the Sidewalk Ends are my the two that come to mind. Yeah, and as far as like non-poetry goes, he also wrote The Giving Tree. Or is that done in a poem? I don't remember. But yeah, he wrote several compilations of children's poetry. He has done some non-children's books, and it's kind of interesting because he... <laughs> like when he knows that he's not writing for children and that he's writing for adults, he just does not really hold anything back. And mm-hmm. so a lot of his sketches involve like naked people. <laughs> yeah. But it's really interesting if if you haven't read any of his poetry aimed towards adults, I think it's worth looking up at least a couple and just seeing like how that like similar writing style but different content kind of contrasts it's a little jarring but at the same time it's very comforting mm-hmm. <laughs> just because totally. you're like oh i like i can still remember what it's like to be a child because his sketches are very familiar and i remember just kind of how i was charmed by it but he's actually talking to me as an adult now and I think there's something very special about that. Yeah, certainly. But we're mentioning him because of his children's poetry. All right. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Kittens and Kanye. Or Instagram at Kitten Whiskers and Kanye. And we are going to be doing a uh, another Boogers and Bad Drivers episode coming yeah. up here. Um, not in the immediate future, but soon enough that if you have anything that you want to go on our brief like 10 minute rant yes. uh feel free to email us at kittenwhiskersandkanye at gmail.com with your complaints about the little things in life that just really annoy you mm-hmm. like boogers or bad drivers <laughs> yeah yeah or we'll also do a potpourri episode probably uh, sometime in the near future yeah or far future i don't know email us yeah. just email us email please just to talk to us maybe just just to say hi just a little chat <laughs> <laughs> oh so until next time it's me audrey stratton <laughs> and i carmen thorley <laughs> and this has been kitten whiskers and kanye mm-hmm. i'm gonna go eat some i don't know butter <laughs> <laughs> It's the only thing I can think of! <laughs> <laughs>